welcome to the fifth and final POCUS podcast of this series. I'm your host, Patrick Gallagher. GE Healthcare has a number of inspiring collaborations in ultrasound and medical imaging with around 75 active research projects and is currently partners in 17 grants. All up, GE Healthcare will be involved in $100 million in research in Australia and New Zealand. Today, we are going to share with you one of our previous projects we helped support that centres around point-of-care ultrasound. To talk to you about this project, I'm joined by my guest, Dr. Douglas Blank, who is a neonatologist and a research fellow at Hudson Institute of Medical Research, Department of Paediatrics, Monash University, and is a consultant at Monash Children's Hospital. Doug won a GE Healthcare Bright Ideas POCUS Global Challenge Grant on exploring the use of lung ultrasound to predict the need for surfactant replacement therapy. Welcome and thanks for joining us today, Doug. Thanks for having me. If you could start by telling us a little bit about your research and how and why it came about. Oh, absolutely. I'm a neonatologist at Monash uh, Children's Hospital as well as a research fellow at the, the Hudson Institute of Medical Research. And I'm going to be talking about the uh, the use of ultrasound to investigate uh, how newborn babies that are premature um, are progressing uh, from the time of birth through the first few hours of birth uh, with the, with the uh, eye on um, deciphering whether or not they have significant respiratory distress syndrome. So um, I take care of uh, sick premature babies, mostly born when I talk about this population, the bread and butter of NICU is babies born at less than 32 weeks gestational age, but all the way down to 23 weeks. And so these babies can be as small as 500 grams or even less. A 32-weeker is usually somewhere around 1,500 grams or so. So quite small. And respiratory distress syndrome is essentially uh, immaturity of the lungs. And there are several different pathways for treatment for respiratory distress syndrome. Traditionally, this has been the largest killer of premature babies, and the biggest advances in our field have been because of uh, improved care and treatment options for babies with respiratory distress syndrome. So survival now for, for 23-weekers, babies that are born you know, several months early, is up to um, about 50% of these babies will survive. When you get up to uh, 27 weeks gestational age, um, at birth, then the survival becomes 85, 90% survival. So the survival is actually quite good. And most of these babies, um, albeit they're in the NICU for three, four months, end up becoming children that um, have really productive lives and, are, and, and thrive quite, quite well. So it's a population where you put in a lot of work, but the reward is, is enormous. So with respiratory distress syndrome, the crucial time points to make decisions on treatment are really early on after birth. We're talking about the first few minutes to few hours after birth. And there are two main pathways. The traditional pathway has been to, to place a breathing tube into these babies um, and mechanically ventilate them and provide them surfactant via the endotracheal tube. And that's what's needed in about half of these babies. What we found in the last I say 10 to 20 years or so, is that many of these babies don't need to be um, intubated and don't need to be placed on mechanical ventilation and can get by with uh, just CPAP. And we know from several years of experience that um, CPAP is a much more gentle mode of respiratory support for babies' lungs. And babies that are supported with CPAP only have a lower rate of mortality and chronic lung disease. Uh, mechanical ventilation has certainly come a long way 
but with each uh, mechanically ventilated breath, you're doing a little bit of damage to, to the baby's lungs, which can re result in scarring and exacerbate not only respiratory stress syndrome, but they can develop something called chronic lung disease. Chronic lung disease is essentially a marker for how bad your lungs are um, when you get closer to term. And, and premature babies that have chronic lung disease have a much higher rate of neurodevelopmental delay, which can manifest in the forms of things like cerebral palsy to uh, being intellectually disabled. So currently the, the goal in NICU is to get away with kind of the minimum that we can to support these babies properly. Where lung ultrasound might come in is at birth, all of us have to go from a liquid-filled lung to an air-filled lung. Because in the womb, while we're being supported by our mothers, we're using uh, the placenta and basically mom to bring in oxygen and get rid of carbon dioxide. After birth, the umbilical cord is cut and we have to start using our lungs for the first time. And this process is universal. All seven and a half billion of us have had to do it. And with lung ultrasound, we can actually observe this process as the lungs go from being liquid-filled to air-filled. And so uh, in babies that are, are born premature, we think we can get a better window into how uh, well the baby's transitioning from fetal life to neonatal life uh, using ultrasound. And traditionally, ultrasound of the lungs has been ignored because as soon as the ultrasound encounters an air-liquid interface, it creates artifacts. But fortunately for us, these artifacts are pretty um, pretty standard. They're, they're um, seen in repetition with different pathology, and they can be interpreted quickly and easily. And so this, the point of this the study that we did with the sport of GE was to look to see if we could predict which of these premature babies were going to need to be intubated and placed on mechanical ventilation, which of these babies were going to need surfactant, and which of these babies were going to get away with just CPAP. Wow, Doug, that is amazing. What a special job you have. Rewarding, but I'm sure also very challenging. And what amazing research. You sort of touched on it previously, but if you could tell us a little bit about your specific goals going into this and what were you hoping to achieve through this research. Has research like this happened before? Is this brand new? Yeah, uh, ultrasound of the lungs has been um, slower to take hold than other um, point of care ultrasound, you know, techniques or fields, I guess, you know, subfields, I suppose. So uh, Daniel Lichtenstein in, in Paris is considered the godfather, if you will, of uh, lung ultrasound, and he started doing work on this. I would think probably more than twenty years ago. Um, he's not pediatric focused, but many have uh, taken sort of his lessons on, on lung ultrasound and tried to apply it. There's, there's um, a couple of groups that are leading the way on this. And so I was just hoping to contribute to work that had already been started. So um, there's a group in uh, Naples, Italy, led by uh, Francisco Ramondi, who have looked at the idea of ultrasound of the lungs, um, helping to predict which babies will need uh, to be intubated, kind of like this study, um, and which ones can get by on just CPAP. And they looked at babies at who were on CPAP that were less than 37 weeks after they were admitted to the NICU one to two hours after birth. Now with surfactant, it's ideal to provide surfactant within two hours of birth. And that has been shown to decrease um, a lot of uh, uh, morbidity and even mortality, including pneumothorax, as well as, uh, like I said, decreasing the, the rate of death. And that those studies were done 
uh, 20, 25 years ago um, when surfactant uh, first became available, actually probably longer than that now. So it's been a goal for a long, long time in neonatology. If you need surfactant, you want to provide it as early as possible before you get damage from uh, trying to ventilate or trying to breathe with very stiff and immature lungs. So uh, I did a study in 2000, well, it was published, I guess, in 2017, um, where we took term babies that were expected to be healthy and near-term babies and obtained ultrasound of the lungs starting with the first breaths after birth. So that would involve being scrubbed in into um, a sterile field if it was a cesarean section or kind of asking the obstetrician to sort of step back if it was a vaginal delivery and putting an ultrasound uh, transducer on the baby's chest the minute the baby was born, or the second, sorry, the baby was born, um, and watching how how the transition occurs. And based on that, what we saw is that the the transition of sort of a liquid-filled lung to an air-filled lung takes place really, really quickly in the healthy-term baby. Um, Within 10 minutes of birth, there was good uh, aeration and liquid clearance. So the next step was, well, if we see this process occur really, really quickly, in a, in a term, in a late preterm baby, so babies that are you know, 35 weeks to, to 40 weeks plus, and the premature babies that are really high risk, will this process also take place quickly? And therefore, can we kind of tell the difference between the babies that have uh, pathology um, and the babies that are just transitioning normally? And so the purpose of, of the study that, that was supported by GE that we've just finished up and um, has been accepted in publication It was called the the Dolphin Junior Study, so the description of lung ultrasound from initial neonatal transition in very preterm infants. Those would be infants born at less than 32 weeks. So what we did is we, it was an observational study. We enrolled, ended up enrolling a total of 52 babies, and it was done at Monash Medical Center as well as the uh, Royal Women's Hospital, so a two-center study with different investigators at, at either center. And so after a premature baby is born um, and the umbilical cord is cut, uh, the baby is taken to a resuscitation platform in the room where 97% or more uh, of these babies require um, support breathing. And usually that support breathing is provided with CPAP or positive pressure ventilation using um, a face mask. Um, if they need to be intubated, they are. Um, and so in the study, we went to these high-risk births and obtained lung ultrasound images uh, between five and 10 minutes after birth, and then again between 11 and 20 minutes after birth when we're still in the delivery room. And then after admission to NICU, which would be somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour after birth. And then we repeated the lung ultrasound again around 12 hours after birth, and then every 24 hours until the baby is reached about three days old. If the babies were intubated and or received surfactant, um, we got ultrasound images before and after surfactant was given. So it was an exploratory study and it's an observational study, but what we found was that the the lung ultrasound has pretty good predictability of which babies are going to need surfactant and which ones aren't. And we and we found that it was more predictive, or at least just as predictive, perhaps more predictive than how much oxygen they are requiring in the first 10 and 20 minutes after birth. This becomes important because on admission to NICU, you now have a, if, if you use lung ultrasound in combination with, with oxygen requirement, um, you now can create a game plan really early on that says that, all right, well, th- this is a baby that's probably going to be fine without CPAP, with just CPAP. And so, you know, we can, we can uh, relax a little bit with this baby. 
allow this baby transition, leave this baby alone versus this baby seems to be a baby that is really going to need surfactant. And so rather than waiting until after that two hour window is closed, let's uh, go ahead and give surfactant, you know, early and make that a priority as far as the baby's care goes. How did the partnership with GE come about and what did you do to enable this project? So the project was already designed and underway. It was a project that I started towards the end of my um, PhD. So I came to Australia in 2014 having, uh, from the United States, having finished my clinical training to undertake a, a PhD um, at um, Monash University and doing clinical work at the Royal Women's, mainly because this area of the world is, is a real powerhouse for neonatal resuscitation research and just neonatal NICU research in general and a really good place to continue training. And as I was told by one of my mentors in the States, a bunch of really good people down in, down in Melbourne that, um, that are great to work with. And uh, everything that was advertised ended up being, being true. So I had done the study that had looked at doing lung ultrasound in, in term infants from their first breath uh, through the first few hours of life as part of my PhD. And I started this study um, along with my mentors uh, looking at the preterm babies towards the end of the PhD, it wasn't going to get into the PhD itself because it wasn't going to be finished, but it was something that, that was already started. And one of my mentors had found the uh, GE Point of Care Ultrasound Global Health Challenge, which was a grant. Uh, it was an invitation to write up a grant application to get support for a point of care ultrasound uh, study. And it, it ranged through all fields of medicine, not just pediatrics, obviously, but actually it was more focused towards emergency medicine and adult medicine. And so the application itself was um, actually kind of fun to put together. Uh, they required a, a, just a short description and then a video. And so I put together a video of, the, uh, of what we were doing. The next round was that I was invited to be one of the, the four semifinalists. And I got to go to the, the States and present at an adult emergency room conference, which was, I was a little bit of a fish out of water talking about uh, premature babies. I think probably once every five to ten years the average emergency room physician has to deal with a premature baby, but you know the, the risk of that premature baby being 25 or 26 weeks, that's that's got to be a once-in-a-career type <laughs> of thing where ER physicians stuck with that kind of a situation for a few minutes. Um, I'm sure they would love to have the opportunity because it is quite exciting. I'm sure they would. But anyway, um, so in that uh, competition, I, uh, one of the four projects was given quite a sizable grant. Uh, I was not successful in securing the sizable grant, but the grant uh, amount that we did secure was was great. It enabled uh, enabled us to make this a two-center study. Um, G specifically provided support. I used um, the G Venue 50, which I guess is now uh, being phased out for a, a newer, more advanced model with um, a hockey stick probe. Um, what was required for lung ultrasound in these uh, infants is something with a really high frequency that can get a very shallow depth of focus. Um, the ideal depth of focus is like one to two, well, probably one to a half a, half a centimeter. And the windows that I was looking at were, we were set at three centimeters, two and a half centimeters for some of the smaller babies. And so having something that was also portable um, was really important and easy to use. So the, the ultrasound machine was a, a touchscreen, um, and the portability was critical because um, babies at Monash and at the Royal Women's Hospital could be born at, I guess, what, somewhere around 15 rooms each at each site. And uh, where the babies are born is more dictated on uh, what the obstetric, uh, you know, how busy the obstetric services look is looking 
there's not really a, a designated place where they have to be born. So being able to run all over the hospital and go to, you know, uh, take the, the ultrasound machine up and down the elevator was, was really important. Having good battery life was important and having it being quite small was very important because the resuscitation platform for, for a baby that small is, is a, is a table that can be raised to about chest height, but the baby is, is a small, small, small baby. Um, you know, like I said, 500 grams or less at times. So having the ability to get the equipment close to, um, a baby that small was, was important as well. So do you see your research leading to clinicians using ultrasound for assessing all neonates lungs at birth? Absolutely. Um, I think yes. It's still an exploratory phase. There's certainly um, units like uh, the ones I was alluding to in, in both uh, France and Italy that are completely converted on this idea. So ultrasound um, carries a lot of advantage for this population. Um, the changes in the lungs are quite dynamic at this stage. Like like I said, that the lungs are going from a liquid inner, you know, liquid-filled lung to an air-filled lung over the course of minutes, and um, the appearance changes quite quickly. These babies are you know, going to have a, a, a long lifespan. So avoidance of x-ray is, is really critical as well. So ultrasound gives the ability to, you know, to, to assess the lungs using, in a, in a point of care fashion, the uh, ultrasound of the lungs is without using radiation. It's really quick to get these images. I, it, it, I'm probably handling the baby for seconds at a time. And, and the lungs are small enough. The chest is small enough where we're a, maybe a two centimeter to three centimeter size uh, transducer gets you a, a very large representation of what the lungs look like. At this point, lung ultrasound is quite simple as well um, in the sense that it's easy to get these images and it's very easy to interpret them. I myself am not particularly skilled in, in other aspects of point of care ultrasound. Um, and I find this really easy to do, really easy to interpret. There's some good adult uh, focused studies that have shown that uh, ER trainees can can master lung ultrasound in, in a very short period of time. Lung ultrasound can also help diagnose pneumothorax or effusions, um, both of which happen not infrequently in our population. Um, it's and it's been more widely used for for you know a trauma fast exam than uh, the kind of assessments that we're doing. So I do think it has quite um, a large role for the future. Oh, in addition, lung ultrasound. Also requires that the uh, the all the fancy correction modes for ultrasound be turned off and uses the simplest technology that's available for for ultrasound. So all that's very promising. Um, this is the kind of application that I could be see that I could see being used in in middle income countries or even in low resource settings. You know, if you had the ability to buy an imaging modality, you might consider ultrasound over say an x-ray machine which is bulky not always portable where this is always portable and and, and reusable so i think there's a, a bit of a ways to go as far as determining the uh the overall utility i think it it, it does work to help diagnose which babies with rds are going to need surfactant and which ones don't i think the the major question is twofold it's really does this really provide an advantage over uh, what we currently use, so clinical assessment, oxygen requirement, uh, pressure requirement. I mean, I think it probably does, but that's yet to be proven, and that's that might be the next direction. Um, the second advantage that's potentially uh, founded in lung ultrasound is, is does it provide us other information that clinical assessment or x-ray might not? Yeah, so to summarize, I guess, on the, on the pros towards using lung ultrasound is that you're not using radiation. It's quick to obtain the images. It's simple to obtain the images. It's easy to interpret them. 
and there's potentially a lot of information that you can get out of lung ultrasound, but that part needs to be explored. The cons at this point are, you know, the, the risk of introducing a bit of technology that is really help uh, for clinical care more than what we already have. It might make things a bit more complicated, but in, in this case, I think it's so simple. I can't really see much of a downside. Great. Well, that's all we like to hear. Uh, we're all pretty passionate about ultrasound here, and, and, and your passion for lung ultrasound and neonates has definitely shone through. You've sort of touched on it in, in the previous question, but where do you see ultrasound heading in the NICU, and what will be required to get there? I think, fortunately for NICU, where I see it heading is the use of more and more point-of-care ultrasound. I think it probably will be folded in to neonatal training as a standard. Right now, the major focus for point-of-care ultrasound and neonates is echocardiography, which is a bit more complicated and really requires, you know, it requires a good 15-plus windows to get a good assessment and uh, really requires a high level of dexterity as well as usually backing from a, a cardiology service that can help confirm that there's no anatomical abnormalities. So as it currently stands, most uh, neonatal trainees in, at least in Melbourne, are offered the opportunity to learn how to do functional echo is what it's called, or point of care ultrasound to, to assess cardiac function and, and flows of blood through the ductus and the PFO and, what, and whatnot. And that's the most complicated use of ultrasound and neonates that, that I can think of. Um, so that takes a lot of dexterity. And, and I'd say probably about, I don't know, one in five to one in 10 trainees probably one in 10 would be a better estimate, really gets uh, well skilled at, uh, at using ultrasound for that purpose. We use a lot of, we do a lot of cranial ultrasounds. Um, it's not typically an emergency to do a, a cranial ultrasound, but that's to look for interventricular hemorrhage and bleeding. Those images are not difficult to obtain, but they're a little bit more difficult to interpret. There's some subtle subtleties there that um, usually having a, a, an offline review is helpful. And then there's a lot of other uh, uses of ultrasound that could be more point of care and, and quick to do. So a simple one is a bladder, is ultrasound of the bladder to look to see if the bladder is filled. If you have a baby that hasn't peed in, in too long of a time, uh, getting a, um, an ultrasound of the bladder could help you decipher is the baby returning, ret retaining urine for a variety of reasons. Is the baby um, actually dry and the, and the bladder is not, not filled because the baby is dehydrated? Lungs, we've discussed to um, look at a respiratory distress syndrome. I think it also could potentially be used to, to drive mechanical ventilation um, to help make sure that you're aerated properly and not over aerated. It's definitely easy to see pneumothorax and effusions uh, with ultrasound. So those are, those are two uses that, that, it, that would be sort of a simple check the box. Do you have it? Yes or no, which would be useful, especially before you decide to get an x-ray. Yeah, so those are so those are some of the several uses. I guess ideally there would be a, an ultrasound machine that would be easy to use. That would be parts in all neonatal units that you could access for simple questions, as well as a, a more robust ultrasound machine that is available for the people with high level dexterity to do the things like the the functional echoes and and the cranial ultrasounds. And ideally, it would be a machine that can do everything. And that's easy to use. So, and that's on you guys to to continue to make machines that are easier to use and um, easier to roll around and uh, can uh, get it more of the functionality that we're discussing. Watch this space, Doug. That's all I can say. A final use that I can think of for ultrasound, which hasn't really been widely used yet in neonates, is um, venous access and arterial access. 
our patients are small enough that usually we can use transillumination for that purpose. But there are there are points of access um, that are a little bit deeper using bigger vessels that are hard to see with transillumination. And, and I think the, you know, using point of care ultrasound to, um, to help acquire venous access is, is something that's widely used in the pediatric population. And we're starting to get there in the neonatal population as well. Doug, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat today. I've personally found your POCUS journey very inspiring and insightful to the NICU world. So I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it. I'm sure this project and research just didn't happen. There must have been many moving parts and help along the way. Would you like to take this opportunity to thank some of the people that have helped you on your POCUS journey and this research? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first group of people to, to thank would be the, the, the babies that participated in their families. Um, the process of being born premature and having to go through that, that several weeks to several month run and NICU followed by special care, followed by um, you know, the, the challenges that these babies have to face as they um, move into childhood is, is pretty intense. And patients and parents with the generosity of allowing us to try to figure out how to better take care of them for future babies is, is really, uh, you know, I guess, a noble um, gift and a generous gift to us. And then I've, I have a really great team at both at the Royal Women's and at Monash that have helped support this idea. We, we've been doing some basic research um, at the Ritchie Center with my mentor, Stuart Hooper, that have looked at uh, trying to look at uh, figuring out the science of um, what we're looking at a bit better, helping decipher um, are these artifact images that are created by lung ultrasound, are they more created by uh, liquid retention, are they more created by atelectasis or, or poor aeration or a combination of the both? And we have uh, um, one PhD student who's um, working on that question currently. I alluded to the Royal Women's Hospital, but um, I guess two that would be uh, really important to think would be Peter Davis, who's my PhD mentor, as well as Cheryl Rogerson, who is the in-house point of care ultrasound expert there, um, who uh, mentored me quite a bit on this uh, study. Shiraz Batterdeen is a, currently a PhD student and a research fellow who it was my partner in crime for, for running the study, collecting the data. And he nudged me out to get two extra patients to make sure that he'd recruited 27 when I recruited 25. <laughs> and then GM and the Emergency Medicine Foundation uh, with a generous grant and gift um, certainly enabled the study to move forward and have probably inspired uh, you know, many projects uh, in point-of-care ultrasound completely unrelated to mine through offering, you know, a chance to compete for, uh, for a prize for, for, um, for people's good ideas, which helps motivate and push research forward, um, as well as providing you know, the technical support and just the logistical support of being able to get this done. Like I said, this study became a two center study because of, uh, because of the support from GE, which enabled it to be done in half the time that it took to, to do it. So thanks again. And thanks for having me. Thank you very much for making the time and um, all the best for all your future endeavours in, uh, in, in medicine and point-of-care ultrasound. Absolutely. I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to uh, working more with GE. The POCUS podcast is proudly presented by GE Healthcare. Opinions expressed in these episodes are solely the guest's own and not necessarily express the views and opinions of GE Healthcare.